whoever made the coffee, I love you. All right. Good to see you, Good Shepherd family, and any guests. Um, so we are going to talk about trauma, um, not as much tonight, specifically by name, although we are going to talk at great length tonight about suffering. But next week and the week after, we are going to dig into trauma. It's a very complex thing, and we will not be able to do justice to all the many different aspects of trauma, but we will talk about the most important things, and give you, and we will develop a language, a lexicon, to be able to talk about it with each other, um, hopefully understand ourselves and others a little bit better. Um, but I would be remiss, and it would be a gross uh, act of negligence if I were to dive into a conversation about trauma without first um, viewing suffering and viewing trauma from God's perspective. And I think what Matt read is absolutely one of the most pertinent uh, quotes that could have possibly led into this discussion because when you look across humanity, one of the greatest existential crises that people continually have is seeing suffering or experiencing suffering and not understanding how a, a good God doesn't intervene or a good God doesn't stop that. And so if they can't understand why God wouldn't stop it, then maybe he's no God at all. Maybe he's not worth worshiping. Maybe he's not worth believing in at all, right? And I'm certain that some of you have gone through those types of of dilemmas or know people that have. And so I think that it would be um, the best possible course of action for us to start tonight from God's vantage, to view suffering the way that God views suffering. And I will use the word suffering a lot tonight, but trauma is suffering. Um, it's a very specific type of suffering, but it is one of the most widespread types of suffering over 50% of all adults in the U.S. experience a major trauma in their lifetime. And Diane Langberg says that trauma is the great mission field of the future, and I believe that. And so we will get to that later, especially at the third night when we talk about how we can help people that are walking through trauma. But right now, I want us to talk about Christ. As we are realigning ourselves with our core mission here at Good Shepherd, that is to know Christ, wholeness in Christ, and discipling by the Spirit of Christ, uh, we're going to also, uh, each, each Wednesday, we're going to talk about trauma through that lens. And so tonight, we're going to talk about knowing Christ, but we want to look at, at, at part, of, part of who he is that maybe isn't our, our normal um, normally the way that we would describe him. So as, as Matt said, Hannah and I spent uh, a lot of time overseas. We worked in war zones. Um, I worked in Ebola response. Uh, I've been in Syria clandestinely. Um, I've seen unimaginable suffering. And I have seen many Christians around me struggle to deal with what they see and reconcile that with a loving God. And one of the things that I encourage people to do before they go into that type of work or before they 
if they have the opportunity to, to get themselves ready to, to go into disaster zones, I always, I always encourage them to, to try to have a robust theology of suffering. Because if you do not um, know what the scriptures say about suffering, and if you don't understand God's perspective of suffering, and if you don't comprehend God, if you don't comprehend God's meaning in suffering, then I'd be willing to bet you'll never trust him with your own suffering. And so that's why I want to start here, because I want you to understand suffering from God's vantage so that you will trust him with your own pain. Is that fair? Awesome. So we're going to just start, not at the beginning yet, we're going to go to the beginning in a second, but we're going to start um, with Jesus on earth at the incarnation. The word became flesh, right? dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. We believe that Jesus Christ is God manifested in the flesh. Amen? All right, that was easy. Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, And Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when you and I see Jesus, who else do we see? The Father. Amen. And they're one, and also Jesus became flesh. We're going to come back to that. So we're very familiar with these terms, these titles for Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, the Holy One of Israel, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. Kind of doesn't fit with that list, does it? Those other ones conjure for me power and majesty and glory. And then we have the Lamb that was slain. To be honest, kind of pathetic in a way, right? Like if you didn't know the context and you were just talking about the lamb that was slain, you'd just be like, oh, that's sad. We know a different story, right? We know the full story. But still, that sticks out for us, the lamb that was slain. Why why would God choose to reveal Jesus as the lamb that was slain? So if we look in Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah introduces Jesus as the suffering servant. He he calls him the man of sorrows, and we're not going to read it for time's sake. But as we've seen, as we've been going through Acts, one of the biggest problems that people had in not being able to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah was what? They didn't realize the Messiah was going to have to suffer. But yet, Isaiah paints a very clear picture of what that suffering looked like. So everybody, from the time you can talk, if you're in church, you've memorized this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I grew up, I don't know if it was because of bad teaching or just, maybe just me, but I grew up thinking that Calvary, that the cross, that God giving his son was a reaction was God fixing something that had gone awry. And that's not what Scripture says. Let's keep going. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from when? The foundation of the world. 
I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds like it's saying from the beginning of the world being created. Is that fair enough? So if Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, then it couldn't have been a reaction to sin. It couldn't have been Jesus being crucified on the cross, on Calvary, as a reaction by God. If he was slain from the foundation of the world, was it God's plan all along? I believe that in the preexistent counsel of the Godhead, that being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, they live outside of time. They are eternal. They are the only being in the entire universe, seen and unseen, that is eternal. They're the only ones that existed before everything else existed. And I believe that in that preexistent council, that God, not being tied to time, chose to suffer. I believe that God chose to express his glory a very specific way. I believe God said to God, God the Father to the Son, to the Spirit, to the Father, let us reveal ourselves to the visible realm. Let us reveal ourselves. And I believe that God chose to do that in a very specific way. I believe that way was Calvary. I believe that way was Jesus coming in the flesh and being the man of sorrows. But it seems sort of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Like if you want to express your glory and your power and your majesty, why don't you come as a conquering hero? We'll get to that part, right? We've read the end of the book. But I believe that God always intended to express himself this way. Because I can say I love you, but my love has limits until I lay down my life for you. And at the moment I lay down my life for you, I have proven my love. But Jesus goes farther than that. He lays down his life and then he's resurrected and then he gives us his spirit, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, unfathomable, this love, right? But I do not believe it was a reaction to sin. I do not believe it was a a reaction to rebellion. I do not believe that God was caught off guard by humans being stupid. I believe it was always his plan to reveal himself this way. God chose to suffer. He chose to forsake himself. Jesus cried out on the cross, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He always knew that was coming. In the garden, he knew that was coming. He said, God, if there's any way this cup can pass from before me, but yet not my will but yours be done, right? He knew that he was on a collision course with the cross. He knew that he was going to bear the sin of us all. He chose to do that. He chose to know sin, to no pain, to no loss, to no grief, to no sickness, and to no trauma. Not just some of it, but all of it. Every single bit of sin and sickness and grief and isolation and fear and nakedness and trauma in any form, Christ bore on the cross and he chose to do so because that was the way that he could perfectly express his love and also take the power back from those things. Amen?
So Romans 5, 1 through 5 is a passage I come back to all the time. When I have been on the field, when Hannah and I have been on the field and we've seen suffering, so much of the time you're just trying to wrap your mind around, is there any good that can come from this? Is there any reason in this at all? Or is this just what humanity does to each other? This is just what humans do when they're left to their own devices. And this is how free will plays out. A bunch of selfish people hurting other people. And there's some truth to that. But is there any good that can come from it? And so when we were in Iraq, we were working in a trauma hospital. We were eight miles from Mosul when coalition forces were retaking the old city in western Mosul, finishing eastern Mosul and going into western Mosul and retaking the city from ISIS as they were attempting to set up the caliphate there. And we were the first hospital for months that received all of the war wounded. And so we were getting children, mothers, people obliterated by ISIS. I'm not going to go into gory detail. But as you can imagine, if we had a ton of people there that were working through the night, operating on these children and trying to save their lives, and they would come out of the operating theater in the morning just concussed, stunned by the gravity and the shock and the pain of the trauma that they were seeing and the trauma they were experiencing themselves. And one of my jobs was to try to find a way at a morning devotion to lead them into some semblance of something. And you're just speechless, right? You're just speechless because what do you say in the face of such horror that doesn't come across as a platitude? And so the Lord brought me to this passage and let me see it in a new light. And I love it. And I want to share some from this tonight. So Paul's writing to the Romans and he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, Paul. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I mean, amen, let's shut the Bible and let's go to the buffet before the Baptists get there, right? Because that will preach. That was, that was not deferential to the Baptists. They're, just, they're literally strategically better than us. They get there before we do. But seriously, stop there, Paul. Stop there. Full stop. That is perfect. That is completely and totally perfect. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Anybody have a record player? You know how the needle just goes, like full stop? That's, what, that's the sound I hear when, when Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I'm like, Paul, I don't think you're using the word the same way I use the word. But Paul is communicating something here very profound, and we're going to figure that out. He's not saying that as believers, we're supposed to be sadist. We're not supposed to enjoy suffering. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Amen? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, rejoice in your suffering because hope. Rejoice in your suffering because it will produce hope. But he uses a few other words in between there. And we've got to get through those words to get from suffering to hope. 
knowing that suffering produces endurance. I do not believe he is talking about human endurance. I do not believe he's talking about your ability as a believer to be tenacious and to hold on to the promises of God because that would fly in the face of everything else scripture tells us because it is by grace alone that we are saved, right? And it is by grace that we walk out every day our discipleship, right? He's talking about the endurance of God in us. He's talking about the strength of God in us. He's not talking about our endurance. Suffering shows me that the God of the universe that lives inside of me, that animates me, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead and quickens my mortal body can handle this. That's what Paul's saying. And endurance produces character. He's not talking about my character. My character is as filthy rags. He's talking about the character, character and the nature of God. When I realize that in the midst of suffering, that something in me is holding, and I also realize that the fruit of the Spirit is coming out of me, I realize it has nothing to do with me at all. Suffering shows me that God is faithful, that he is in me, and that he is working. And that produces hope. Because at my lowest, he doesn't leave me. At our lowest, he doesn't reject us. At our lowest, he doesn't say, give it your best shot. Give it the old college try. At our lowest, God says, I'm here and I'm with you. And the spirit that I've given you is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, y'all. That is why we have hope. And that is why we are not put to shame. I love this verse and I hate this verse. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. It is one of the most manipulated, most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. It is used incessantly by prosperity preachers to try to put a positive spin on the gospel to make it more seeker-friendly and to get people in the doors. And apparently they have not read it in context or read the rest of the chapter, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes, that is true. But you only have to ask a few elementary questions to make that really hard to swallow. You only have to say, so my suffering, my trauma, the abuse that I experienced, God's going to work that together for good? That sounds like a platitude. That sounds like one of those posters with an eagle, you know, in a sunset, and then at the bottom, there's a nice little platitude that tries to wrap everything up so neatly. But when we read the entire chapter, we get the context of it, right? He says in verse, four, verse 25, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, God has a plan for our suffering, and that is it. Ultimately, God uses it for our good by turning us, by changing us, by transforming us into the person of Christ. And that gives God glory. That exalts the name of Christ. But unless we take this whole thing out of context and think that he is talking about a, a Christian experience that is mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop, 
we need to remember that in the greater context of this chapter, he's talking about the persecution of believers. He's talking about trauma happening to them. He's talking about them being killed. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, and if I could be so bold, or trauma? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are, we are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. And yet Paul is saying, <laughs> he will, God will work all these things Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. He'll work all those things for our good? Again, Paul, I think our definition of good is like, like, I don't think we mean the same thing. But it's not Paul's definition and it's not my definition. It's God's definition. What is good to God? God who sees from an eternal perspective. God who knows that the suffering of this life is nothing compared with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ with our eternal destiny in him. That's not to minimize suffering. It's just to say that God sees it from a completely different vantage. God sees it because he sees us being transformed into the image of Christ. And he knows that that is the only place that we will find true fulfillment, true contentment, and ultimately true healing. And I think as I've traveled around the world, people in other cultures are less consumed by why things happened. They're more concerned that their pain is not wasted, that there's a way for it to be honored. And this is the way that God honors our pain, by allowing us to be transformed into the image of Christ. Now, I know that's hard to swallow, and I know that can sound like some pretty heady theology, and I probably didn't say it very well, but I also know it's not my job to convince you of those truths. I know that the Holy Spirit, if you will allow him, will reveal to you that this is God's heart towards suffering, that he doesn't waste it. Scripture doubles down. (laughs) It doesn't just say, you're probably going to suffer. It says we must suffer and we will suffer. In Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There are multitudes of things that can be said about suffering. But two of the things that I think are most important are that it removes from us any illusion that we are in control And it also ends any dependence I might be willing to have on myself and my own strength. And at the end of those two things, all that I have left is to cling to Christ and cling to my brothers and sisters as they cling to Christ. Amen? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ not only bore our trauma, our shame, our pain, but he did it so that we could actually truly be healed from it. As Matt and I were talking this morning, it's very obvious that a lot of times 
whether it be medical trauma or whether it be a medical condition or whether it be trauma, that a lot of times practitioners treat the symptoms. They treat the superficial things that they see to give people a better quality of life. But there's only one way to truly be holistically healed, and that's by having your wounds be healed in Christ and through Christ. That doesn't mean that all the other stuff is bad. I'm the first to tell someone who's struggling with unresolved trauma that counseling is a great thing. If you're having a heart attack, my God, please go to the emergency room. I'm praying for you the whole way, right? But yet wholeness, true wholeness, where we are at peace with ourselves and with the universe and with God, true wholeness can only come by having our wounds be healed in Christ. Amen? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. We're going to read a longer extended quote uh, from Diane Lamberg in a second, and it goes right along the lines of what Matt read. Scripture explicitly says that Christ understands us. We do not serve a God that is far away. We do not serve a God who we can't know that he understands. We actually can know that Christ understands what we've gone through because he experienced it. I truly believe that on the cross and however that, however that happened in the supernatural, that Christ experienced every sin and every ounce of suffering and every ounce of trauma across all time for everyone. I truly believe that. So this is the longer quote from her. And again, Matt mentioned the name of this book. It's called Suffering in the Heart of God, and I would encourage everyone to read it. It literally is packed full of incredible theology. Um, it's Christ-exalting, but she is bona fide. She's the real deal. She loves people, and she has walked with them through unimaginable trauma. The crucified is the one most traumatized. He has borne the World Trade Center. He has carried the Iraq War, the destruction in Syria, the Rwandan massacres, the AIDS crisis, the poverty of our inner cities, and the abused and trafficked children. He was wounded for the sins of those who perpetuated such horrors. He has carried the griefs and the sorrows of the multitudes who have suffered the natural disasters of this world, the earthquakes, the cyclones, and the tsunamis. And he has borne our selfishness, our complacency, our love of success, and our pride. He has been in the darkness. He has known the loss of all things. He has been abandoned by his father. He has been to hell. There is no part of any tragedy that he has not known or carried. He has done this so that none of us need face tragedy alone because he has been there before us and he will go with us. As we spend this season knowing Christ and, and, and trying to appreciate how we can know Christ more and deeper, I just encourage you to spend some time contemplating Christ as the man of sorrows. Spend some time contemplating Christ as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. If you have experienced trauma or if someone you love has experienced trauma or if you just want to understand how to help a neighbor that has experienced trauma, 
I would beg you to have these things settled first. And as you contemplate knowing Christ, the sufferer, and as you can, by Holy Spirit revelation, come to terms with the fact that God does not waste suffering and that God suffered for us so that he could take the bite out of suffering so that we could truly be healed, then you can minister from that place of hope. Christ is the perfect embodiment of both suffering and the sufferer. Christ is the healer, the deliverer, the restorer, the shoulders upon which all the suffering of his bride goes to find its final resting place. Christ is our hope in the midst of suffering here. And Christ is the hope that we give to others. So as we have seen, God is intentional about suffering. From the very beginning, from the pre-existent council, God was intentional about suffering. He chose suffering as the way to express his glory, to express his person, to express his nature, ultimately to express his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? He allowed him to be crucified. Christ laid down his life so that he could become suffering for us. God is purposeful about suffering. It didn't catch him off guard. He uses it to transform us into the image of Christ. He uses us. He uses suffering to produce in us hope. He uses suffering to show us that he never leaves us and he never forsakes us and he's right there in the midst of it with us. Suffering is not God's chief end on this earth. We are not sadists. We don't suffer for the fun of it. We don't run to suffering to get a merit badge on our Christian vests. Suffering is the reality of a broken, fallen world where people do what they want to do in spite of the fact that it hurts other people. And yet God still chooses to redeem us. And ultimately, suffering is not God's eternal destiny for his bride. We have a hope that one day No, every tear will not be uncried and every pain will not be unfelt, but there will be a day where there will be no more tears and there will be no more pain. And that is the hope that we offer people. And also we walk with them through their suffering here the way that Christ walks with us through our suffering here. Scripture doesn't use the word trauma, but... I think this is as close as it comes. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. When I meet people that have been traumatized, that phrase often fits, crushed in spirit. There is something about trauma, especially trauma of a severe and personal and shocking nature that crushes the spirit. Next week, we're going to look at the physiology and the psychology of trauma. We're going to look at how it affects us and our bodies and our minds and our emotions. And we're going to look at how it affects us spiritually. And then the following week, we're going to dig into that some more. And we're also going to look at how we can minister to people that have been traumatized. Not to be trauma counselors, not to heal them, but to be much more sensitive about walking with people. 
who've been through inexplicable experiences in their life. And also some of you have experienced some deep trauma. And so as we make the transition into worship, I just encourage you to focus on Christ, the suffering servant, Christ, the man of sorrows, and know that there is no safer place for you to unburden your soul than with the one who already knows exactly how it felt to be you in that situation. I know that Matt will come up after worship and, and we'll move into a time of prayer. But again, this isn't about being healed tonight of all of your unresolved trauma. But I hope that this is a night where some of you can take a little deeper breath than you've been able to take in a long time. And maybe believe for the first time in a long time that there is some hope that can come into those darkest of dark places. I want this church, Matt and Bethany, I know want this church to be a safe place where people can be honest about their brokenness. As next week we move into thinking about wholeness in Christ, you first have to admit you're not whole. You first have to admit you're broken. And those are just words unless you get real specific about how you're broken. And you may not have the words to talk about your brokenness. And I hope next week you will get some words. And I hope next week the light will come on for some of you and you'll realize you're not abnormal, that you responded very normally to a very abnormal thing that happened to you and that you have permission to be human because God made you that way. And that when the human body gets overwhelmed by trauma, it acts all types of ways. And also God created you and he can put you back right. Amen.